There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The easiest way to ease back into routine? Start it up in September, especially if you're headed back to school. It's a three-month increment number. It's the end of summer. It's back to school. It's a good restart to the year. And you can simplify and celebrate this restart with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip. Some people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. Quip's built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. Quip's multi-use cover works as a stand, mounts to mirrors, and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. It declutters your sink or cabinet and makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. Plus, there are no wires or a clunky charger, and it runs for three months on a single charge. That's the three-month thing. They send you a new one every three months. Brush heads are automatically delivered and just $5. It's a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh to stay committed to your oral health. We just got my husband's uh, Quip replacement in the mail. See, so I are, they're on different schedules. And I have seen that he's been using a regular toothbrush and I've been wondering why. And it turns out he forgot he subscribed to Quip with me. And we got it in the mail and he was like, oh, Right. So there is a very, very good reason why you want to have your toothbrushes delivered regularly, especially, I guess, if you have other things on your mind, like my husband. He also um, likes it for the travel friendliness of the case. And in fact, I am traveling tomorrow. And when I was going through the list in my head of things to pack, one of the things I thought of was, I do have that Quip case, don't I? And I do. That's why I love Quip. That's why it's perfect for getting back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. And this is a little bit of a pop-up intro before the show gets started, because I need to give you a trigger warning. There is a very brief discussion of sexual assault in this conversation. So if you're not in a place where that's okay to hear, then skip this episode until, I hope, another time. And as usual, I would like to remind you, if such conversations bring up things that you need to talk about and you are ready to talk about them, you can talk to the good folks at RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. Their hotline is 800-656-HOPE. And one last note, there is not as much discussion in this episode of the El Paso Massacre as you might expect in a discussion that is primarily about whiteness. We kind of explain why in the episode but I wanted to foreground that because it is a missing piece that we are aware of, let's say. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Sometimes those divisions are unavoidable. They're tragic and stark, and we have to talk about them. So this is both the best time and in some ways the worst time to be talking about what I'm going to talk about with my guest this week. She is Betsy Hodges, the former mayor of Minneapolis, and currently a speaker and consultant around issues of whiteness and white 
Resistance to Racial Equity. And she is in the studio, which I consider incredibly fortunate at this particular time. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm pleased you're here, too. I've wanted to do this show for a long time. It, of course, breaks my heart that it is tragically topical today. Yes. For good or for ill, it is always tragically topical in this country. It is sometimes a headline and sometimes not. That's absolutely true. Perhaps it should always be a headline. If it were, things would either move faster or slower. <laughs> well, we'll get into that because one of because white resistance to racial equity and like what happens when racial equity starts to happen and how white people resist that is obviously something you talk about. I am sure, however, that there are people who want to know exactly what it means to be a consultant and speaker around these issues. When people, when white people think about race and racism and racial equity, most often white people think of people of color and we expect people of color to lead us out of our whiteness, to lead us out of our racism. And there's an inherent design flaw in that expectation if we really actually want to live in a world where your life outcomes aren't predicted by race. And so I talk explicitly about whiteness and white resistance. It is part of white privilege that I'm able to do that with fewer consequences than people of color or indigenous people face when they talk explicitly about whiteness as whiteness. Um, but it's the idea that white people, we aren't without race, um, that whiteness is a constructed race. It was constructed in distinction to other races. And part of the way whiteness functions is to be largely and almost entirely invisible to white people, how whiteness functions day to day in our society. And so when I think about whiteness and when I think about racial equity, um, if we want to enroll white people in the work of racial equity, we have to deliberately and on purpose talk about whiteness and how it operates with and among white people. And we get to do that work with each other. And I'm sure that you know this, but I'll recall it for listeners who may not listen to every episode of this podcast, which is this is something that uh, guests who are people of color have said point blank on this show and, of course, elsewhere, that this work of racial equity cannot be just the work of people of color or just the work of non-centered people in general. Like, those of us who have privilege have to use it. And we also have to recognize, I mean, we have to recognize what it is. I feel like there's like a, I mean, there's, we describe it as awakening for a reason and there are stages to it. And I, I don't like the word woke, but it is, a, it is good and it describes actually a process, like waking up. Because I feel like step one is kind of an easy thing to get to, which is that racism is bad and racism exists in the world. And then there's a big jump. <laughs> there's a real steep learning curve to what you're talking about, which is that if you're a white person, and I am white, and that is a race, and I am a product of it. It is one of the taboos of whiteness to actually name and claim whiteness. It is consequential wherever you fall on the political spectrum to name yourself as a white person. Um, it is part of the system of race that we white people expect other people of people of color and indigenous people to do the heavy lifting of uh, explaining what race and racism are, to take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune for having done so while we lurk in the background watching. And plotting sometimes, like being like, you, yes. 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 But not. Yes, that is that is largely the role of the liberal left is to and some and often the progressive left um, is to watch and applaud um, 
and not always know how to take action. And when we do take action, we don't always know how to take action with other white people. And you talked about that leap from racism is bad to I am white. And that is a huge leap in part because, especially on the left, for almost every white person, I would say, Racism is seen as a personal failing, and acts of racism are seen as acts of interpersonal prejudice and discrimination. And they define you as a quote-unquote bad person. I think this is true for almost every white person, wherever they find themselves on the political spectrum or however conservative they are. And the idea that racism is simply the animus you hold in your heart— allows for two things. One, you don't get any further than that to see that race is actually a system, that our social systems were set up and designed to make sure that white people's lives have better outcomes than people of color's lives and indigenous people's lives. And that that is true regardless of the animus in our heart. As long as the system operates as it was set up to operate, it will get the results it was intended to get. And everybody in that system can be good-hearted to a certain point and not hold personal prejudice, to still have the system they're in and the role they play in that system result in worse life outcomes for people of color and indigenous people. And so the leap from racism is bad to I am white for many white people is seen as a leap from, hey, yeah, racism is bad to, oh, that must mean I'm bad. Because it's an assumption that all white people, if you acknowledge you're white, you're doing something bad and you're acknowledging racism and that you might carry that and that is the definition of a bad person and who wants to be a bad person. And so it is uh, an excuse um, unintentionally for many white people. It is one of the things locking racial systems in place. And we have so much I want to get to. There's a good place here to plug in. There is always uh, on the left, I think, and especially in media, sort of an argument about whether or not the term racist is a useful thing and whether or not you call somebody or something racist. And you and I have talked about this offline <laughs> a lot. Um, and I, I can't claim consistency on this because I— because I admit there's something cathartic about saying Donald Trump is a racist, for instance. Yes, sure. And there is also, I feel like, when people cheer what he has to say, when people, specifically at a rally, when they shout things, like send her back, that makes me want to say those people are racist. However, I recognize the argument that you have that that is not useful and maybe even incorrect. Right. And that's a dicey place to go. I don't want to. That's be, where we go. That's exactly that's where we go where in the we show. Go. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I just want to name it. Yes. Because um, if I make this argument, I run the risk of, say, of saying, you know, of appearing to be an apologist for whiteness and not understanding what racism is. And I will leave that to others to decide, but I know that's a risk I'm running. It is not my intention. My intention is to expose whiteness so fully that we can craft strategies and solutions to get rid of it, frankly. And to that extent, we cannot overestimate how unseeing and ignorant white people are about race in general and whiteness in particular. That white people, by design, most white people can't, if the system is going to function properly, see and understand our own whiteness and how it functions and operates. And that just how we think, how we go about our daily lives, thinking that we are not being quote-unquote, being racist at all, simply how we function day to day if we are not actively against racism and if we can't see how our whiteness functions and do something about it, how we go about acting day to day 
has the impact of racism on people of color and indigenous people, whether we intend it to or not and whether we see it or not. And so for lots of white people, since racism is being a bad person, and Robin D'Angelo outlines this beautifully in her book, White Fragility, for so many people, so many white people, for so many white people to say to somebody, you're racist, when all they're doing is going about their daily lives as unseeing and ignorant as our lives have made us, why are you calling me a bad person when I haven't done anything wrong? And here I will point to the article that was in The Atlantic not too long ago where I believe Elena Plot went to a Trump rally and got lots of quotes from people explaining how they backed all of the policies that Trump supports and, and, and they, were, they are also not racist. There was one woman who had uh, biracial grandchildren and in the next— sentence, I believe, accused Ilhan Omar of wanting to impose Sharia law, um, which is a racist, (laughs) like, construct. And Islamophobic. And Islamophobic. Um, And I want to call that racist. I want to call that person, I guess sometimes I'm able to catch myself and say being racist rather than that person is a racist, make it a little more active, where I will be able to say that's a racist statement. But I also want to acknowledge, because you've laid it out really clearly, that I believe this woman when she says she's not a racist. I believe that she believes that, and I believe that she has warm relationships with her grandchildren. I believe that in her day-to-day life, she does not show animus to people of color, knowingly, at least. Um And that is important, and it is true that when we have this national argument about racism— and calling people racist, it it doesn't just shut the ears of actual Trump supporters, but there's a whole sympathetic group that is like, well, that means I must be a racist too, like, or, you know, you just go around calling people that. And it shuts down the entire conversation about white supremacy. Yes. Okay, moving on. Because I okay, go ahead. I mean, we all have whiteness lathered on us mm-hmm. from the very beginning. All of us white people have had, in one form or another, whiteness slathered on us, and an investment created in that whiteness. A minister named Thandika has written a really lovely book. It was her dissertation, and it came out in the late '90s about. Um, I think the title is The Creation of Whiteness, about what the experiences are of a white person as they become white and what those early memories are, which are very different from the memories people of color and indigenous people have about learning about their own races in our culture. So it, it, um, if we're going to have a systems view, like on the left, I think there's general agreement that and I'm a sociologist by training so I think in these categories there's there's a general agreement that our system creates a set of opportunities or denies a set of opportunities that those opportunities are not randomly distributed and that one of the distribution matrices is race and that it shapes people's opportunities and it shapes people's life choices and funnels choices down to a very narrow set if the system is getting its way, which it doesn't always, that there's also an enculturation and a socialization that happens along with that, that shapes how we see ourselves and how we see other people. And that a lot of times when white people on the left, we think about systems, we think about um People who are people of color who are making decisions regarding violence or illegal activities, and we understand that those choices are shaped by the structure that we have created. What we don't talk about as much is that whiteness and white people are also shaped by the structures that we've created, that we are also socialized and enculturated to think about ourselves a certain way and other people a certain way. Um, I am not equating those lessons to one another. They're complementary by design. But it is still a systems view of whiteness that most white people don't hold for ourselves or each other. And if we did, I think it would open up doors to how we can work with each other to strategize and change how the systems function for everybody. 
I think that is a good entry point to, to what I really wanted to bring up as kind of the other half of using the term racist and having a conversation about who's racist and who isn't, which is that it sure feels good to be on the side that says you're the racist. Um, if you're a good liberal um, to say Donald Trump is a racist, that feels fantastic. A good white yes. liberal. Yes. Um, it feels amazing. It feels, you know, whatever. I don't need to—people understand. It's a relief. It's a relief. It's cathartic. Those aren't, nece- and those aren't necessarily bad things, but it does paper over other things we should be thinking about. I'm not any less white than Donald Trump is. And it, yeah, that's actually, that's the, the a very, <laughs> that's like a, a very pithy encapsulation of the, of what I was going to spend, you know, who knows how long t- t- saying, maybe I still, I'll still do it, which is that when I call someone else a racist, I don't have to think about how I benefit from the system. And I would add to that, that's why we say it. Yeah. And this is where I wanted to bring up explicitly uh, the El Paso massacre, which is I had a thought, knowing that I was coming in to talk to you today, I had a thought over the weekend uh, watching the coverage, and there was this this strange ritual that was being played out on the cable news networks, at least MSNBC and CNN, where every host, white host, felt the need to take some little part of their hour, many hours, and say something like, I don't know, a personal note, and give a little homily about how horrifying this was. Now, I don't doubt those feelings at all. But seeing it over and over and over made me think, there's a reason, there's a systems reason why this is happening and why it's kind of making me feel that tug that you've taught me that maybe there's something here that we're not talking about. I would agree. Um, And first I would echo what happened was horrible and horrifying. Absolutely it was. And I don't doubt for a minute that those newscasters who have to put their brains inside of that all day, every day, in the aftermath, sincerely feel that horror in a way that's hard for the rest of us to understand in some ways. That that is 100% true. It is also true that a racial system cannot function properly without an extreme white right wing. That white nationalism, white supremacy, and Nazism are a necessary part of racialized, racial, racist systems. And when those systems feel under threat, there are lots of really effective strategies it employs to create more white nationalists, to create more extreme people. So A, so that they can protect the system and they can engage more people in protecting the system and protecting whiteness, um, in part because the more uh, right-wing, right national, you know, white nationalists you have, especially who commit violence, the more space they create for everyone else who's deeply committed to their whiteness and white supremacy to function without seeing any more clearly what their whiteness is doing to the world and to their neighbors. In other words, it creates a lot of space for people to express racist beliefs, to think racist thoughts, and think that those beliefs and thoughts are not racist at all. And I think, especially for those who might consider themselves, you know, well-meaning liberals who hate racism, to denounce, decry, focus on one's own trauma in these instances enables us to be like, and that's not me. That white nationalism is something that I personally reject. Yes, the white left is no less white than the white right. Our behaviors are different. Um, 
And we then we can then we get to stop thinking about our whiteness. That's that's the exactly. I should finish the sentence because of course it's horrible. Of course you should denounce it, but it is in the system we have. It is difficult to have someone both denounce and then continue to think about their own whiteness. Yes. Yes. If you can't understand where that person's whiteness came from, you cannot understand where your own came from. Or if you think that's the only form that whiteness takes that is harmful, then you, uh, it, it's a huge barrier to seeing how our own whiteness functions. And the, as I said, the left is no less white. The white left is no less white than the white right is. Our behaviors are different, but the impact is often uh, quite similar. Uh, You know, cities are some of the most progressive liberal bastions in the country. You look at voting maps and cities are blue and everybody else is red and et cetera, et cetera. And yet the outcomes for people of color in those cities um, doesn't improve over time. And those cities are run by uh, liberal and progressive white people very often, not always. And that is a question for whiteness. That is not a question of, uh, uh, of, you know, what's wrong with people of color. That's not the question. The question is, what's going on with white people? That we profess this set of beliefs, and yet the outcomes in the places we control— Still, have, still are terrible for people of color and indigenous people relative to us. And I've seen it operate. Uh, I've been in City Hall. I worked at city, a city hall for 12 years, the City Hall of Minneapolis. I learned how white resistance functions inside City Hall in a way where no one has to say, I want people of color to fail relative to white people. And yet the behavior... Uh, persists. And that is a question for the white left. That is a deep question for the white left um, because it's not the white right who is dictating those outcomes in our cities. I want to illustrate the the ways that mere denunciation does can shut down thinking by noting that there have been several conservatives who have come out recently who profess the beliefs the, the beliefs that a good liberal can recognize as having racial animus, uh, and at the same time, they're very stridently, you know what, what am I thinking? The president came out. <laughs> the president came out today and denounced in forceful language what happened. And there's already, you know, that little, like, thing that happens where people are like, today's the day he became president, you know, like, they want to give him a cookie for, like, saying the right thing. But obviously, there's. I mean, this that shows how that doesn't take us very far in the conversation to denounce. If your bandwidth of talking about race and whiteness in particular goes from one to three, mm-hmm. and one day you go from one to three, right? People are going to be like, "Wow, that's a huge leap." If the entire cultural conversation is about going from one to three, and the real question is, how do we move white people to go from one to ten? And it's an open question. Do we start by trying to expand the conversation to four, five, six, you know, slowly? What do we do? That's an open question. But the phenomenon you're talking about is like, yes, he went from, you know, the deep end of um, the very deepest possible end of supporting white supremacy to the shallow end of the swimming pool of supporting white supremacy. I mean, yay, but what is it going to take for us all to get out of the pool? Is a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. 
Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com and click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. You ever buy something online only to find out later you missed a discount? I don't overspend anymore, at least not because of missed discounts, thanks to Honey. Honey is a free browser add-on that finds the best deals online. The app magically auto-applies the best deal to my cart at checkout. Honey finds discounts and coupons across 37,000 sites, Amazon, Sephora, Best Buy, Nordstrom, and more. With Honey, I don't have to worry about missing a deal. I just shop like normal, and Honey handles the rest. Recently, I was shopping um, for—don't tell other advertisers—I was shopping for sheets— and um, there was some kind of white sale happening. I didn't know where. I decided just to buy the sheets that I would buy. And Honey found an actually kind of enormous discount. And then I bought them. And then just this morning, realized I'd forgotten to get pillowcases, and that promo discount was expired. And guess what? There was another one. So I got discounts both times, and I wouldn't have found them without Honey. There's no reason not to use it. It's free to use, easy to install on your computer in just two clicks. So shop with confidence. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash friends. That's joinhoney.com slash friends. Honey, the smart shopping assistant that saves you time and money when you're shopping online. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. And we're back. Deep breath. Betsy. Yes. I now want to talk about something that, that, again, you and I have discussed before. And I still have some trouble getting my own head around well-meaning white liberal that I am. Yes. Which is the idea that we white people need to love one another. Yes. In our whiteness. Not yes. just sort of a... Yes. You know, as romantic love mm-hmm. or friendship love or mm-hmm. world peace love, but spe- in the specific context of our whiteness. Yes. And you just even said that out loud and I got I know. nervous. Ugh. It doesn't, I don't disagree with that, but I know that it is a difficult thing to talk about uh, because it requires nuance and that is a difficult thing to find in oh. our current conversational environment. And it scares me to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And why I'm, that's why I'm trying to front load all the stuff about this is not this is this is hard to talk about. Our language is imperfect. People, especially people who consider themselves progressive, anti-racist type people, are going to hear those words together in a sentence and feel nervous. Yes, because it goes against that step one of our racial equity yes. progress when you go from racism is bad to I'm a white person. Maybe this is actually step three. This is like a, this is advanced mm-hmm. <laughs> white people working for racial equity stuff to yes. be able to say out loud that white people should one love one another because it sounds, you can, you can take this from here if you want, but the reason why that makes people, you know, hesitate is because they think you're asking them to love whiteness. Yes, and that is not it. No, there is a human being that precedes the whiteness slathered on the human being. I believe that deeply. Um, and But we have to acknowledge the whiteness. That's the thing, is that, and that's why we, I think, 
I keep saying in the context of whiteness, because it's easy to say we need to love one another. Yes. Yes. It's harder to say I'm going to acknowledge this person's whiteness and my whiteness and love that person. Yes. I've been having a series of structured conversations with people around the country for the last year and a half about whiteness and about what it's going to take to scale up work with white people about whiteness to the point where we have enough white people working on it that we can actually move systems, not by ourselves, not only white people, but what is our role in the work of creating a just world. And what was surprising to me, I've had this conversation with white people, people of color, indigenous people. What was very surprising to me is the number of times I had a conversation, I have had a conversation with a white person where I ended up asking them, do you think white people are worthy of love? I think you asked me that one time. I think I did. And I, I actually now, I'm, I had trouble with it. Yes. Yes. I had a, I, it's, you, you got me. Yes. And the question I ask at the end of this conversation is what, if any, secular framework can we create for white people to do this work with each other based on compassion and love and looking for the human in the other person that doesn't condone or appear to condone the racism on which the identity of white is based? I don't know yet what framework we can create. What secular framework? What secular framework can we create? There, you know, in a lot of spiritual and religious settings, there is an understood common belief from the get-go that people are either born good or saved by the religion that they're in so that everybody in that group, at least, is, is understood to be a good person who is laboring under some difficulty. And they do their whiteness work based on, you know, premise from there. There are religious and spiritual frameworks, but there isn't a secular framework. There's no there's no mental, cultural infrastructure to have this conversation in a way that doesn't provoke images of white nationalism and Nazism. I often say, you know, if I as mayor have stood up and said, I love white people, (laughs) there is nowhere (laughs) for that to land. And I understand that. Besides white supremacy and Nazism, you can make a distinction between the human and the whiteness, but that requires an understanding of what whiteness is and that it's part of a social system, enculturation, socialization um, as part of that system, which is a difficult, you know, which is not a starting place that most white people are at. And for people who are, who have an understanding, who see that racism exists, We remain very, very uncomfortable about the idea that um, white people have had whiteness slathered on us, that the human being underneath and the humanity that remains and shines through is worthy of caring about and probably the first part of a person to approach when talking about race. That if we want to enroll white people in the work, and I— and and. That's a question for a lot of people. I have come to the conclusion that, yes, that is useful in the work of dismantling racist and racial social systems. Then blame, attack, and criticism, and this is white people to one another, fear, anger, and shame are not a sustainable social organizing model. They're not a sustainable model for organizing and social change, that kindness and compassion and love and seeing the human in the other person is the most successful strategy that I've seen over the arc of human history. And if those two things are both true, but the only secular framework for white people to look at another white person and say, I value you, is uh, white supremacy and Nazism— that is actually inside whiteness and it's inside the racial system that we— purport to want to change. And so that's how I come to this question. What secular framework, if any, can we create for white people to do this work with one another that doesn't condone or appear to condone the racism on which the identity is based? And it may be that it is such a foreign 
um, concept, that the attacks upon the concept will be so big from the outset that there's no way to get through them to another side. Um, that may be true. I'm hoping not. I'm laying bets that it's not, but that is a danger. And it requires such a shift on the part of people who feel like they've already done a lot of work. Because we are talking about, again, the people who consider themselves anti-racist. I think that's the, a good phrase. Um, because when you talk about ro- enrolling people in the work, you're not talking about going to a Trump rally with a clipboard. Exactly. You're, no. <laughs> this, th- th- these arguments will definitely not land there. No. And I wouldn't start there. Right. That's not a good place to start. I can see and understand with compassion how those people were shaped and formed right. to be there doing that. And I can also say, I disagree with everything you're saying and doing. And uh, that is not where my work lies. Yeah. This conversation got started between you and I because I think I, I shared with you something that Diana Butler Bass said on the show, which is when we were having a conversation about gratitude, she mm. offered the thought that you should never be grateful for something that oppresses others. Yes. And you um, pushed back. I did. On that. And that, that really got to me. <laughs> Yeah, it sure did. It sure did. I think we had a little bit of a we had a spirited we did. discussion. It's one of the ways I knew we were friends by how incredibly mad you got at me. Yes. Yeah, I got real mad. <laughs> I got real mad. I'm like, oh, good, we're friends. Um, she can show it. Oh yeah, you know that you've definitely you've you've achieved like graduate postdoc level of friendship <laughs> with me because uh, I'm so not good at expressing anger at people who I care about. Um, at, with, I don't know, I don't even have the language. In any case, I did listen to you, and I listened to how you talked about this as a whiteness is a thing that we, you use the word slathered, which is like maybe a little bit too evocative for me. It makes me think of toast and butter, but mm-hmm. um, it's not Steeped baked in, in, but whiteness is not baked in. It mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. slathered. Maybe it's this slathered. is a good metaphor. Mm-hmm. And the other thing— It's like sunscreen. You can scrape it off. —that came up in my mind, I don't know if we talked about it explicitly at the time, was the idea of when I think about what I'm grateful for Mm -hmm. as a person in recovery, as a person Mm -hmm. with a mental illness, Mm -hmm. I am grateful for those things. I am grateful for my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I I feel that it is something that has— Real hard for a lot of people to understand that since you are also in the program, I know you get it, but it made me who I am. Yes. My alcoholism made me who I am, and it didn't make me—I did a lot of bad things when I was drinking. But if I had not done everything that I had done, if I had not had everything happen to me that happened to me, if I had not been acculturated the way I was acculturated, I would not have gotten to where I am today, which is a white person— who wants to undo the systems of whiteness, a a person who is in recovery, a person who tries every day to improve my relationship with my higher power, that would not be the case if I wasn't an alcoholic, drug addict, and bipolar person. So I'm grateful for those things. And I started to think about whiteness in the same way. If it's possible to be grateful for whiteness in, in, at least in that context, maybe in other contexts too. Is that somewhat the kind of journey that you want people to be on? Um, Perhaps. I mean, I've thought a lot about that conversation since you and I had it. And one of the things I've come to understand in one of the conversations I had with a professor actually helped highlight and illuminate this for me, which was if you— if, if we are asking ourselves and our sibling white people to relinquish our attachment to whiteness, right? We all have an investment in our whiteness, as Robin D'Angelo has said. We all have an investment in it. And that investment will remain as long as the social system rewards it. All of us have an investment. Um, If you ask me to relinquish my whiteness and my whiteness, especially, you know, especially for people whose whiteness is still intertwined 
with everything they learned from everyone they love most in the world. You know, whoever that is. For a lot of people, it's parents, grandparents, community, neighbors, whatever it is. Um, If it's entwined with things that you love right now, my deep and abiding love for Bruce Springsteen cannot be separated from my whiteness. For people who aren't white who love him, they have, you know, it's not entwined with their whiteness, but for me it is. And I would hesitate at anybody who asked me to relinquish Bruce Springsteen while I was relinquishing whiteness. And um, that may seem like an inconsequential example, but I think that's what a lot of white people hear when they hear the phrase white privilege and you have to let go of whiteness and white privilege. We learned whiteness from our community and the people we love most, as well as our culture and everything else. And so whatever secular framework we construct has to account for people's love for things that aren't, one would say, everything in the culture is actively supporting white supremacy. But maybe don't start with, you have to give up everything you love. (laughs) And so... To ask people not to be grateful for who they are if their understanding of their whiteness is still intertwined with their understanding of who they are is a pretty heavy lift. It's not necessarily a place I would start with people, I guess, is is what I've come to at this point. I don't know. Her point is well taken, and your point at the time was well taken. And I still think that it is maybe I I would, if— I will speak for, for myself. I do not think that I will be saying in my prayers, my, my daily prayers, that I am grateful to be white. Because that, it sounds, it just, it every nerve ending I have kind of like, Ugh. Oh, yeah. And I wouldn't ask you to. Right. And I do gratitude and, but that's also, every day. that's also not what you're asking for. And, right. and that's also, and it's sort of, and that's, I think, sort of where we can appreciate what Diana was saying and also yes. talk about what we're talking about, which is that she was laying, I think, out uh, a rule of thumb for how we express gratitude in our lives on a daily basis, hopefully. And in that context, it might not make sense. To, yes. To, it does not make sense. No, because to, it, and to your point, it reaffirms your attachment to your whiteness yes. if you're actively grateful for your whiteness. Right. I, I, I believe that. I, I write gratitude lists every day. I have done for years. Not one time have I written down, I am grateful to be white. I have written down, I'm grateful to see my whiteness for what it is. I am grateful for the ways that I acted against it today. I'm grateful for the people who called me on it in a way that I could hear. And I'm. you could also say, I could imagine saying, I am grateful for all of the experiences that I've had that have made me aware of white supremacy. And so, can some of those experiences were not calling out other people's white supremacy, some of those experiences were my benefiting from white supremacy. Yes. And in the way that I'm grateful to be an alcoholic, <laughs> which is to say that I don't approve of those things, I can approve, I, I can be grateful for the experience and the knowledge and the direction that I get from these things without approving of them. Yes. I mean, I'm a, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault. I uh, came to a realization that was very freeing for me in my mid-20s that my perpetrators did not do anything to me that had not been done to them, and that I didn't need to resent them or hate them or even fear them, um, that I could have compassion, love, and pity for them. Like, being freed from that resentment and that hatred was a beautiful thing in my life. And I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody while at the same time, I am completely aware of how deeply it shaped the person I am, and I wouldn't want to be anybody different than who I am today. That idea of profound truth, a truth whose opposite is also true. I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone, and I'm actually not grateful for it per se, but by the same token, I'm not going to go back with a time machine and erase it because uh, who knows? 
There is a saying in the company that we keep, you will neither regret the past nor wish to shut shut the door door on it. Exactly. And whiteness is very similar. Like, okay, whiteness is a thing that is done to us by the people we love. Um, It is a set of beliefs that are installed. It is a set of behaviors that are installed in ways that are um, often painful. Uh, You know, it's it's a thing that happens. And I actually wouldn't wish it on anybody. And it is the thing that happened to me, and uh, the question for me today is, what am I doing about it? Am I, am I moving toward it? Am I moving away from it? Um, I don't think I can ever—it's it's an open question for me whether a white person can ever walk fully away from whiteness. I think the answer is no, not in our culture. Until the systems no longer have incentives for whiteness in them, a white person cannot get away from our attachment to those incentives. I am smiling a bit because there's another piece of wisdom from the rooms we share about this, which is just for today. Yes. And one step at a time. Yes. Which is that we don't know if the work of racial equity will ever be done. We don't know if we'll stay sober forever. But we do it for today, and we do it one step at a time, knowing that if we do the next right thing, I'm speaking entirely in AA jargon for people that don't realize it. <laughs> there, the outcome, our higher power will guide us to the outcome that mm-hmm. is needed. And you and I, I think, happen to believe that racial equity is the, we'll get, we're, we want to get there. And HP probably, I think, I yeah. think HP is into that, but The way I put it now for myself is where everybody is included in the circle of love and belonging. And definitely my, the God of my understanding, that is part of what I believe if I follow, if I align my will with God's, that is where we get. So that I, yeah, and and, and in case people aren't aren't getting it from explicitly, I'll say, aren't getting it, I will say explicitly, which is that I do believe like my own journey on working out uh, racial equity, uh, working towards racial equity, and also working out other kinds of privilege is is intertwined with my desire to have a closer relationship with my higher power. Like, it is not necessarily one in the same. Whiteness by design separates people from one another. And systematic separation of people from one another never has a good outcome. And the tragedy of race is how it separates people from one another. And one of the hallmarks of whiteness is that at fundamental levels, it separates white people from one another, which we do not always see and cannot always understand. And it's one of the things that's in it for white people to do this work. One of the things that, one, you know, inside the racial system is making an argument to white people about racial equity that is basically charity work. Like, hey, white people, do good things for people of color. <laughs> like, you know, use your largesse. You know, yeah, think of privilege kindness. as a thing you spend rather than a thing you undo. Yes, exactly. Yes. And that racial equity work for white people is charity work that we can step into and step out of. And what we don't do for each other as white people is make the case that there's something in it for us besides charitable good feelings. And it's a reclamation project. There are things we lose in the process of having whiteness installed on us. And it's a fundamental connection to other people gets broken. Our ability to see ourselves and other people as fully human gets broken. Our generosity gets inter our natural generosity as human beings gets interfered with. Um, I consider whiteness work to be a reclamation project. I don't consider it to be a letting go project. I consider it a reclamation of our humanity in a way that is profound and joyful. And that is not how the work is ever uh, that I see publicly. I, I, I don't know that I've seen it portrayed that way. 
I can't think of a time I've seen it portrayed as joyful, loving work that connects us more closely to our humanity and the humanity of people around us. You know, whiteness makes us whiteness makes us scared we're going to lose something we care about. And ironically, we've already lost the things we care about most, and we get to reclaim them. I think about how it is very easy to make the argument to a well-meaning, liberal, anti-racist person, white, anti-racist person. The number of times you and I both had to go back and add white, by the way. Yes. Um, I think is interesting and telling because you and I both work really hard on this stuff, and we still normalize whiteness. Yes. Just it is it is habit, habitual. Yes. To not name Literally name whiteness. Yes. Even though that is what we're talking about. We sort of, it's assumed everyone knows that's who we're talking about. This entire conversation is taboo, and I will be exhausted when it's done. Because talking about taboo things is exhausting. You know what I do after we record an episode? I go home and play with the dog, and that's all I have bandwidth for. (laughs) And even this conversation, this conversation about what's in it for white people, this conversation about how talking about it is taboo and, and, and is tiring, runs the risk of saying, oh, racial equity work is, you know, let's center white people again and feel so sorry for white people and it's all about white people. And that isn't the um, intention, but it is also if we don't talk about what it's like to do the work, people get surprised by it and then they stop. Right. And I wanted to to say, I was, I was starting to say, if you want to talk to a well-meaning, white, anti-racist person about the kind of work that we're talking about, meaning loving other white people, one way to frame it might be you do the social justice work that you do in order to further the bonds of humanity, right? That we all, that you feel that our brothers and sisters of all races, we love one another. We are a race. We white people are a race. And we need to be able to love each other, knowing we're white. And not doing that excludes us from the circle of love and belonging. Yeah. And we exclude each other. We end up excluding each other. We exclude There's each a, other. You and I have also talked about the um, the black person approval merit badge. How do we just somehow— Oh, like, yes. <laughs> or the yes. person of color merit approval merit badge. I mean, most, peop- most white people— um, Seek the approval of people of color. I mean, people on the right are doing this all the time. Like people who hold very um, openly prejudicial and discrim- views and discriminatory behaviors toward people of color and indigenous people um, trot out their person of color or their indigenous friend. Um, whiteness loves the approval of people of color. And we seek it out in order to absolve ourselves of our whiteness, which it does not do. And I think in progressive liberal circles, that is, it also winds up being a divisive thing. It's something that you showed other white people to be like, to, to I'm better than you. Yes. Like, I have this approval badge. I yes. have my—look at all the merit badges I have Yes, that show that, that people of color and indigenous people approve yes. of me. That separates me from you. Whiteness wants comfort. Yeah. Whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And for people on the left, the source of discomfort is often the cognitive dissonance we experience between how we want the world to be and how the world is and our own attachment to how the world is and um, our—we feel discomfort around that. And whiteness wants comfort. And we look—if we're still inside the systems of whiteness— the things we do to find that comfort um, still have the impact of racism on people of color, indigenous people, and our systems, which is we look to people of color for approval. Uh, in moments where someone needs to talk about and name race, we push leaders of color forward thinking that's the right thing to do when really what we're doing is hiding behind them. So when the pushback and the resistance and the unkindness come, it's not doesn't come to us because we're comfortable back there. It goes on to people of color and indigenous people. And it's why there are so many programs on the left that are about making white people comfortable about race and not actually making impactful change uh, that would 
transform the opportunity structure and the outcomes for people of color and indigenous people. It's why there's so little investment in things that we know work to make measurable structural change at city hall, at state capitals, at the federal level, inside private corp, you know, inside private corporations, inside nonprofits. We know what works. We just don't do it. We prefer things that make us feel better, but don't thrust us into the discomfort of actual change. Um, because then we will be uncomfortable about the change that's happening. And our whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And one of the freedoms that comes with doing whiteness work is an ability to see where our comfort is tugging at us and the ability to make a different choice. One of the places where our discussions have gotten stuck is when I am feeling uncomfortable and come up with particular examples that complicate whatever it is you're talking about, <laughs> which I think is is pretty natural kind yes. of reaction to to discomfort about yes. narratives. Yes. What about this? What about this? What about this? Something that you said to me that was really helpful, and I think I can, because I imagine that there are a lot of people out there who are ping, 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 what about this, what about this, what about this, as they're listening. But something you said to me just yesterday that I have found very helpful in working through my resistance, which I'm not going to say, like, I've completely worked through it. Like, I don't. Me either. Yeah, I don't claim to be, I don't know, I'm, but I'm trying to understand. And I trust you because you've done years and years of work on this. So I trust that you have thought about this more than I have. And I want to figure out what it is that I might learn. But you talked about how the personal specific examples are less important than the, the structural reframing of how we think about each other. Yes. And that hit home for me. In thinking about, I, I go again to the rooms where we have a culture that allows for people to do horrible things, and we still love them. And it is accepted within the community that this love does not mean approval. And you mean sobra- sober rooms. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry. The mm-hmm. rooms that we share, you and me, yes. friends mm-hmm. of Bill, et cetera. Um, In those rooms, you can do horrible, horrible things, and people do do horrible things. And you can can act badly towards someone, but you will always be welcomed back, and you will be loved because there is an ability in that culture. That culture has created the space where we separate people's actions from the inherent goodness that we, most of us, believe people have. And it's coupled with... How on earth am I going to judge you for being an alcoholic when I'm an alcoholic? I have also done horrible, horrible things. Right. I have my side of the street to clean up. Yeah. And so to yell at you for having your side of the street to clean up. Um, or to judge, not just yell, but to judge. Yes, to we, judge. We, we don't, we, mm-hmm. we try to refrain, of course, human nature yes. to judge. And that's another place where and I, it's what are you aiming for? It's not what do you succeed at every day. But it is that idea. And, and I feel about whiteness the same way. It's, look, how can I sit there and point the finger at other white people when I am just as white as they are? And if I say, oh, I've been doing this work for however long, and so I get some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, that's not true, right? I just, um, I'm not any less of an alcoholic today than I was when I stopped drinking 30 years ago. I just make a different set of decisions about am I walking toward a bottle or away from a bottle. I'm not any less white than I was 27 years and a few plus months ago when I set myself on this path, I'm not any less white. It's just, am I walking toward the investment in my whiteness every day or away from it? And who am I bringing with me? Um, And it's that, that's a secular framework I wish that we had with each other. Um, That I'm not going to sit here and shame you for being white. I'm white too. Um, I do feel it's a muscular love that is with accountability and expectation, the same thing I have for alcoholics in recovery. I can. There are people that I love very much that I cannot be around. It's if you are going to persist in doing this to yourself, um, 
Ugh, and that's not even the way to put it, right? If you're going to persist in the behavior, I totally get it because I'm an alcoholic too. And for the good of the order and for me to be able to keep moving forward in my life, I can't follow you down that hole. And so there are, there are sibling travelers on that road with me, and we're all doing our best to move forward together. And what I'd like to be able to do with whiteness is create a secular framework where sibling travelers can move forward together with a love for each other, not a blaming for the thing that happened to us that has happened to every white person, but also a muscular love and an accountability and an expectation that we move towards something better together and that we figure it out as we go. I think that's a good place for us to close. Betsy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. We're probably going to need to have you back because I think this discussion has to continue. This is the first time I have talked about these things to any great extent publicly. So we'll see how it goes. We shall. And that is it for the show. You, dear listener, are also probably exhausted at this point. So please take care of yourselves. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.